You are listening to The Partner Podcast, relevant information to enhance the careers and improve the lives of partner-level attorneys. Produced by The Attorney Search Group, we grow law firms and accelerate attorney careers. Visit us on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. Hi, this is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me on The Partner Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to hear from former law firm partner Stephen Harper and hear about the unique experiences in his career as an author. Stephen is a retired litigation partner formerly with Kirkland & Ellis and has written four books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis. Stephen is a regular contributor to Dan Rather's News and Guts and the creator of the Trump-Russia Timeline at BillMoyers.com. He's an adjunct professor of trial advocacy and legal ethics at Northwestern University Law School. He graduated from Harvard Law School and earned his bachelor's and master's degrees with distinction in economics from Northwestern University. I've got with me on the podcast today, Stephen Harper. Stephen, I'm glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And so, Stephen, I know I'd met you years ago when I interviewed you for your book, The Lawyer Bubble. Here we are today. The title and topic of our show is the noble and sometimes shameful role of attorneys in the Trump era. What happened? How do we get to this topic? Kind of give us an overview of, of where you've come from in your journey and why we're talking about that today. Sure. Well, this for me, this started uh, back in, in the summer of 2016 when I guess it really came to a head for me and for many lawyers, I would think, when uh, candidate Trump lashed out against the federal judge in California, whom he deemed a Mexican judge, uh, who should have recused himself, I guess because he was Mexican was Trump's theory, although that's, uh, first of all, he wasn't Mexican. He was born and raised in Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, but I think increasingly, it became clear to to me and a number of lawyers, um, I'm not the only one who started writing about it then, but a lot of, uh, several others did. But the concern was always the same, which is, what is if he were to become president of the United States, what regard would he have for the rule of law and separation of powers and all the things that make America uh, what it is, which is a, a, a democracy? And so that just got me writing a series of, uh, of articles on that subject. And um, over time, it morphed into a more systematic treatment of what I thought and still believe to be a really central question, which is Trump and the rule of law. So that's that's sort of how it's begun, and I think what we've seen is a uh, over the last two years is uh, a vindication is not the right word, but confirmation that those, those early concerns about Trump and and how he would regard the rule of law were not uh, specious. Uh, it, it, it's a very real concern, and and the thing that has been sort of amazing to me, and that's why why I've been continuing to write about it, particularly for for the lawyer audience, is the willingness of attorneys to be really complicit and aiders and abettors in, you know, that whole attack. I think it is an attack, frankly, uh, on the rule of law. So uh, let me let me kind of pose this challenge. I mean, what we're talking sure. about, some people could say, well, that's a political topic. I would argue that it's not. Where, yeah. and you and I talked before, you know my politics, I'm a conservative. You know, right. Personally, I'm not in support of the current administration for those reasons. Right. Um, so how would you argue? Somebody say, well, we're getting into politics. How would you say that, no, this isn't politics. This is about the rule of law. This is about the Constitution. This is about procedural law. How would you argue that? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to the question of, 
of certain fundamental principles that you would expect that there would be bipartisan agreement. You would think there would be bipartisan agreement that there should be respect for the separation of powers. You would think there would be bipartisan agreement that it's not appropriate ever for the chief executive of the United States to be specifically and personally attacking judges because in the case of the first judge, Curiel, uh, back in 2016, he ruled against Trump in the Trump University case. And those sorts of attacks have continued you know, incessantly, really. We went from there to after Trump was elected, you go to the travel ban, you know, and he, he lost the, the travel ban. Court after court after court ruled against him on what he wanted to do in the travel ban. And uh, Trump unleashed a, a fusillade of attacks. And, you know, what should happen at that point is that lawyers who, at least in theory, have an allegiance to the Constitution, at least we all, as we, as we swore to, as we entered the bar, those of us who are members of the bar in any state, swore a fealty to the Constitution of the United States. That, that doesn't have an, an R or a D for Democrat or Republican. You know, that's, that's just the Constitution of the United States. And, and um, that shouldn't, that's not an issue that ought to be the subject of partisan concern. That should be something that's of concern to, to any American, because the rule of law is not, is not a Democratic or a Republican issue. Well, you've, I think what you have hit on is a very sensitive nerve some people agree with you. Other people say, come on, let's just get our way. Let's just use any means possible to pursue our own political agenda. How would you argue that? Well, if you're a lawyer, you don't have the luxury of ignoring the Constitution of the United States. It's one of the promises you make to the profession and to the country is that you will provide, abide by and respect the U.S. Constitution. And if you've got a, a wayward chief executive who's sort of not on board, then your obligation is, first of all, to tell him he's not on board. And if you don't have the guts to do that, then, then get out of the room. And if you're going to, if you're willing to, you know, basically suppress that goal, that purpose to a short-term personal agenda, because you have some particular political goal that you think you can achieve, and this guy's going to sign the legislation or appoint the person that you think is going to do it. Well, you can do that, but you're doing it at, a, at great long-term expense to the, the founding document of the Republic. Right. And so I know in your article, All the President's Lawyers in the ABA's Litigation Journal, you talked about enablers with JD degrees. What's, what's your concern with that? Well, again, these are people that should know better. In fact, they do know better. And yet they're willing to just sort of go along with them. And, and he attacks and a judge, for example, that rules against him. And, and before long, and you know, I documented all in the article, I don't need to go through all the, in all the details here. Mm-hmm. But when he was White House counsel, Don McGahn wrote a statement that reads as if it had come out of a third world country talking about, you know, elected judges. Well, give me a break. Every federal judge in the United States is appointed. Don McGahn knows that. Uh, and he knew that when he wrote this diatribe that attacked a, a so-called elected judge, you know, in San Francisco. Kellyanne Conway gets on the airways and, and says, you know, Trump wants to tweet attacks and go after the Ninth Circuit, you know, he has every right to do that. You know, Mike Pence consistently. These are all people who have law degrees. You know, Jared Kushner, Reince Priebus, you know, his most recent lineup of Jay Succolo and, and Rudy Giuliani. And then you go over and you think, well, okay, but we have checks and balances, right? Well, except Mitch McConnell, who again has a law degree uh, from Kentucky. Uh, Lindsey Graham has a law degree from South Carolina. Uh, Jim Jordan, uh, Ohio. You know, those people are, are front and center in, in enabling this sort of, uh, it's really lawless conduct that is, and they, rather than stand up and step up 
they're just, as you say, maybe it's, maybe it's political at the end of the day. Maybe it's personal ambition. I don't know. It's been baffling to me that there haven't been at least some Republicans willing in power. Um, I don't mean uh, Republicans generally. There are plenty of, of people who were Republicans and they still identify as Republicans and conservatives. Uh, David Frum, for example, a, a lawyer, again, not practicing, but a lawyer, stand up and say, you know, you, you just can't do this. You can't have a president who does this kind of stuff. That's because um, the name of the game is staying in the game. Exactly. You know, even Kellyanne Conway's uh, husband, uh, George Conway III, you know, he's become, I don't know if you've been following that sure. story at all, but he's become one of the most outspoken critics of the president. And, and his, his point is always the same. Uh, you know, I, I suspect based on what I've read about George, that his politics are as conservative as they come. And yet he's, he's unabashedly bashing Trump because at the end of the day, the rule of law doesn't seem to matter to Donald Trump. So I give, I give uh, high marks to those who are willing to, to sort of stick their heads above the the foxhole and say, you know, you can't do this. But he's got way too many people surrounding him who are just, uh, you know, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And if they won't say yes, sir, then I guess they hit the bricks, right? Do and you find somebody who will be a, you know, who will tell him what he wants to hear. Do you think it's just the temptation of human nature? We see this as a path, not we, but those who are in power. And I say this as someone whose political uh, thought lines up to the conservative model, but I see the execution of how that's being done the same way you do. And in fact, many of the policies are not truly uh, from a conservative, but that shouldn't matter what the politics right. are. Right. But you know, my feeling about all this, and when I first started writing about this stuff, I always had exactly the same approach. Look, we can argue about policy differences on a whole range of topics, but if, if you lose democracy and you lose the rule of law, then all of the other battles that you thought mattered disappear and they become irrelevant. Uh, and I think, you know, your question is a good one, which is, you know, what is it that what's behind this from the standpoint of the people that are unwilling to, to step up? Well, who knows? It's probably different for different people. I think in some ways being in you know, proximity to power is, is intoxicating to people. I think ambition is a big part of it. I think there's also a kind of a, I don't want to call it a cult following, but I think there's a tendency to which people just, you know, the easiest thing is to go along to get along. And so you've got the most powerful man in the world telling you something. You want to find a way to get along with them. And I, and I think that's sort of a human nature tendency. Maybe sure. at the back of their minds, is, is there some thought that maybe there'll be, there'll be money and wealth at the end of this rainbow? Maybe that's part of it. I think what's more likely at the end of the rainbow is a is the harsh judgment of history that's going to be extraordinarily unkind, not just to, to Trump as someone who is consistently eroding. Everyone says, well, you know, there goes another norm. No, don't talk about there goes another norm. You know, these, these are fundamental bedrock principles of, of, of democracy in America. And, and you start losing things like, like a president who, who doesn't respect the other branches of government. Right. Uh, you're just in big trouble. You're just in really big trouble. That's, and that's regardless of the politics. That has nothing to do with it. No, absolutely. I have very, very good friends who are very liberal, and I have very, very good friends who are very conservative. And um, they all agree. I mean, I don't, there's not serious disagreement among people with whom I talk about this stuff on that basic point. Yet, you know, Trump, there's no shortage of people. Apparently, there's no shortage of people who are willing to just sacrifice their reputations uh, and their legacies uh, on the Trump altar 
for you know for what for what games i don't i don't know sure. so tell me about the trump russia timeline years ago when i met you you were an author you had a blog and tell me about your path your path to developing this timeline tell us what it is and how did you get there sure uh well you know fortuity is always more important than anything else that happens to us in life and i think that's probably true here you know from my blog uh, bill moyers took happened happened upon a mutual friend of ours actually sent him an article that i'd written I think it might have been about Trump and maybe it was about his attack on the so-called Mexican judge. And he sent it on to, to Bill. And I had then, you know, began talking to Bill about this stuff. And so I was writing regular columns for, for Bill Moyers. Again, the, the goal being to focus just on not political issues, although Bill is a, is a, is a liberal for sure. Uh, nobody would mistake him for anything else. Mm-hmm. I tried to do what I could to just keep the discussions, my discussions at least, or my contributions factual. And so one of the articles that I wrote in early 2017, shortly after Trump was inaugurated, was an effort to just try to keep straight, you know, a handful of facts relating to Russia, because I thought the whole Trump-Russia saga, I thought it was getting lost. You know, we were back, back when we were arguing about, somebody was arguing, I should say, about crowd, inauguration crowd sizes and travel bans and, and every other thing. There was so much chaos. You know, people forget there was tremendous chaos at the beginning. And I was concerned that there, there was a real, real issue here relating to the Trump and the Russia stuff. So I just wanted nothing more than to try to provide a, a vehicle for keeping facts straight. It's not an argumentative timeline. It doesn't argue for a result. It just tries to assemble from wholly verifiable, corroborated, you know, published Actual sources, reliable published sources, although I suppose Trump would regard the New York Times and the Washington Post as fake news, but relying on, on purely reliable sources created this timeline. And so from an initial, uh, that went on, we, we did that with Bill, with Bill and his team and his website, which was BillMoyers.com. Uh, about the middle of the year, we created an interactive version. Uh, which allowed people then you could click on a name and you could see because it was really as it as the thing grew it became confusing and people are too busy to try to sort this stuff out. So we developed the capability where you could click on a name and all of the entries relating to that person would show up. So um, they wanted to see well wait a minute well how does Roger Stone really fit in all this? Well you can click on Roger Stone's name and then there's every entry relating to Roger Snow oh, wow. Stone and it became kind of an eye opener. So but long story short the when Bill retired at the end of 2017. We migrated the uh, the timeline over to where it now appears ultimately, which is with Dan Rather's News and Guts is his site, and I'm now uh, contributing uh, regular articles to to Dan that appear on his site relating to again how do I know what's important? You know, I know we update the timeline every week when, as there are significant developments, and one of the things I just try to do is say, look, you know, here's here's something you might not have noticed. This matters. Pay attention. Right. Um, so that's where it is. And that's, and people, of course, now people are thinking, oh, gee whiz, is the story over? You know, Mueller's done and, and William Barr has issued his, uh, his summary. I guess there's no story anymore. And of course, that's the great danger is that people will think there isn't a story there anymore when in fact, we don't even know the story. We don't know the Mueller report. And more, more importantly, we have no clue at all what the counterintelligence findings are, which is the part of the Mueller investigation that everyone keeps forgetting about. Right. And it's nowhere mentioned in the in bar summary, but all that's sort of a, a detour. But that's how I wound up again, sort of fortuitously now as the architect of what has become this from grown from about 15 entries to almost 2000. 
So uh, what type of coverage does uh, Dan Rather's site get? How many people click on that? What's the traffic? Millions. Yeah. Millions. He has a huge following. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a, he has a gigantic following. So do you think, let me ask you this, if Trump was a liberal Democrat yep. and followed that, the same tactics that he's been following to get his way, do you think there would still be people standing up against him that currently are? I do. Well, I sure hope so. It's hard for me to believe there wouldn't be. But I think for people who care about the fundamental issue, it transcends party politics. Mm -hmm. And I just, I have a hard time believing, but who knows? You know, some people will just say I'm naive. I don't understand power politics. You know, this is all about power politics and I don't understand Washington. Okay, fine. I don't understand Washington. But, you know, there's some things that are really, really should be sacrosanct. They should be immutable. They should be, they should be timeless. You know, there's a, there's a story that uh, as Benjamin Franklin was leaving the Constitutional Convention in 1787, a woman came up to him and asked, Dr. Franklin, what is it we have, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin replied, you have a republic if you can keep it. Right. Um, and, and there's nothing inevitable, nothing inevitable about the American experiment and democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's the other thing we forget. I think too many people forget. Uh, we're not destined to to be the democracy that was created. You know, we're living on. You could even argue we're living on borrowed time compared to the the survival rate for most democracies. So, I just think this stuff is really important. And I and I think uh, I like to think that it's there are enough people of goodwill who whose view of all this you know is really really does transcend party politics and are looking more not at the the immediate short term political gain, but they're thinking about what kind of America they want their grandchildren to grow up in. I think that's important to, to put the overarching values above political gain. Right. And right. I just wonder if that's hard for people to do. It just goes against our human nature, our intrinsic motivation to get what we want. It's well, almost... It's, yeah, it's difficult. And, and, you know, part of the problem too, particularly with that story that's as complicated as Trump and Russia um, some of the things he's doing aren't complicated at all. You know, you can just see, you can see what's happening at the border. You know, you can see some of this stuff. You see kids in cages. You know, you get there. There's some things that are just happening that are just, you know, you you just you, you can hardly believe that it's happening in America. But you know, I think I think a big part of it, when it comes certainly to the Trump Russia story, is that it's so complex, it's so complicated, and people's lives are so full. They're so busy. How are they supposed to keep track of it? Why should, first of all, why should they keep track of it? That's their first question, right? Because their time is precious and why should they spend it on, on this exercise? And then second, if they decide they want to wade in, you know, they get a little bit into it. You can get a little bit into this story and just throw up your hands and say, you know what? I'm never going to figure this out. The heck with it. And let's move on. And of course, that's the enemy at this point. The apathy and um, sort of impatience isn't the right word, but apathy is a, is the real danger, I think, at this point on all of this stuff. And, and it's particularly challenging if people don't feel any kind of, per- until it becomes personal, it doesn't matter. And so if you have a decent economy and people are working and, and they're busy at work and, and that sort of thing, you know, I think that in general, people just don't have time for politics. Oh, that's just Washington. You know, that doesn't right. matter to me until it matters to them. It will eventually, you know, unless the trajectory changes. It hits in a per- it'll hit in a personal way. So whether it's some serviceman, you know, relative overseas in some, you know, strange conflict that all of a sudden we've become embroiled in and no one can quite figure out why, 
Uh, there are lots of different ways that this is going to that this can hit this sort of thing can hit people personally. And, and so, what recommendations would you give? Let's say there is a partner listening to this right now, and what's interesting is just seeing how much work this has stimulated in the white collar investigation space. What I've seen firsthand in Washington within my business of talking to to white collar partners. A lot of what I do is uh, that type of search work. But what yep. do you think somebody could do? Are there any action steps that you would recommend those listening today? whether they're conservatives or liberal, Republican or Democrat, where they do believe that the commitment to preserving our constitution and due process and the rule of law, that is more important than achieving a personal political gain. For those people, what do you think they should do? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I would sum it up in two words. I would say, pay attention, pay attention to what's happening, pay attention to the the kinds of matters and cases that are coming into the office. Maybe they come in with very attractive billable hours. Where are those cases likely to lead? Are they leading to a good place or a bad place? And I understand there's, you know, lawyers have this overriding, and I get it. They have an overriding, you know, your your mission is to represent your client zealously to the fullest extent of the law. But not everyone has a right to your personal services, and you have to make a judgment. Pay attention to what you're taking on. Make a judgment about whether this is something that fits into a broader pattern that you might find uncomfortable if you have to explain to your children or grandchildren 20 years from now, hey, dad or grandpa, why were you involved in that again? Mm. And make sure, you, make sure you, you're okay with that. And it's, it'll be some consolation to say, well, everybody's entitled to an attorney. But it's, it's less fulfilling, I think, if what you have to say is, well, they were entitled to an attorney, and oh, by the way, I guess I helped them dismantle the rule of law. Um, mm-hmm. It's one thing to take a, to, to, to be willing to take on a client and argue a good faith legal position. It's another thing to take on a client who has as his objective a systematically undermining the rule of law and the institutions that uphold the rule of law. And that's where somebody like Trump, for example, crosses the line. Nobody who systematically goes after the FBI and the Department of Justice and and you know all of the fundamental the courts, um, and even at times Congress. Anybody who goes after that, they might be entitled to do that on their own. But I think every lawyer sitting in a corner office, or sitting in a partner office, or sitting in an associate's office has the not just the right, but the obligation to the country to say, well, okay, everybody's entitled to a, an attorney, but is this guy at this moment in our history entitled to me? Mm. Um, and that's a personal question, and not every attorney may be comfortable answering that personal question. But I, to me, that's what I would – and just pay attention. Just pay attention to what you're doing. Don't get so lost in the notion that whatever the thing is that you're going to work on is going to enhance your billable hours or your partner profits so dramatically that you're going to be able to buy a second or a third home someplace. That may not be as important right. you know, to your grandchildren. Stephen, your content here, in my own opinion, I think it's what – we need to pay attention to. And like I said, this isn't political right or left. It's, it's what's, uh, what's necessary. It's right and wrong. Yeah, that's right. So, so tell me about what are your plans? I know you've done a lot of speaking in the past. I know you've written several books. What do you see yourself doing over the next few years? Uh, well, I, I've been approached by a couple of publishers to see if there's, a, if there's a way that would make sense to sort of convert what's happening, what I've been doing on the timeline into a book. I, I haven't sort of thought through all of that well enough to know. My first answer to, to, to those that have been, 
well, I can't begin writing the book till I know how the story ends. And right. I don't know how this, I still don't know how this story is going to end. I don't think, and I don't think anybody does, but I'll keep doing what I'm doing and, um, you know, try to, you know, put facts out there. I, I think this particular mission I'm on right now is, is one I, I really feel sort of dedicated to it in a way that it's not sort of like, well, write a book, put it down and go on and do another one. So I, I just have to sort of, I think I have to play this one out and see where it leads. And, you know, given the way my life has gone in the past, you know, one thing always sorts of leads sort, uh, to another and probably through some fortuity that I can't even begin to predict. Uh, it'll <laughs> take an, uh, yet another turn. But. Well, I can't wait to see how that happens for you. I can't wait to keep in touch with you and read some of your content online. Uh, tell me about how people can find you if they wanted to read some of the content sure. you've written. Where can they go to see that, Stephen? Sure. Uh, well, they can go to my personal blog. Uh, typically, I, I I put the stuff up. Uh, Dan Rather, we put it on Dan Rather's site first, and then within 24 hours, I put it up on my personal blog too, which is thelawyerbubble.com. Or you can go to the Dan site. News and Guts is the is his website. It, the timeline also appears, although my commentary doesn't appear, at a, a site called JustSecurity.org, which is uh, run by uh, Professor Ryan Goodman at the NYU Law School. So those would be the three easiest ways to well, uh, great. see what I'm up to. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for being on the show today. I'll put all those links on the show notes, and maybe we'll have you back on here in the near future. Pleasure to do it. Maybe, who knows, maybe somebody who's listening to this will be, be responsible for whatever next weird turn my, my, <laughs> my life takes around the next corner. Sounds great. Thank you All so right. much. All right. Thanks, Ted. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me. And if you have ideas or recommendations for this podcast, please email me at scott at attorneysearchgroup.com. For more information about the Attorney Search Group and the services I offer as a sports agent for partners who want to find a better platform, visit me on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.